Well, as we have been working through Matthew 24 and 25, or we haven't reached 25 yet, but we will next week, as we're talking about the Lord's coming again, Jesus coming again to reclaim his kingdom, to gather his own, to judge sin and wickedness, what is the Lord's coming, or what is really the, the lay in the Lord's coming do in your heart? What does it do in your heart? See, there's a way in which we can acknowledge that Christ is coming again, but it's kind of out there. We know it's going to happen, but it doesn't really change us. Sometimes we just kind of discount it. Well, it's been so long, uh, can't, can't possibly be coming, so I'm just not going to worry about it. Or maybe we just think, well, yeah, it's going to come, it's going to happen, but it's really not that important, so I don't need to worry about it, I don't need to think about it. Really what Jesus has been doing in the discourse has been showing his disciples that this is important. It is necessary for Jesus' disciples to think on this. Remember the, the five main teaching sections that happen in Matthew, like each one of those is something that is supposed to be passed on, supposed to be taught the very end of the book of Matthew, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And part of that is this discourse. Part of that is thinking about the Lord's coming. But because there's a delay, because there is a delay, we, we might discount it or we might not even think about it. We might acknowledge that it's there, but it's just not in our minds day in and day out. Jesus is going to address that this morning. Jesus is going to start, starting in verse 36 of Matthew 24, he's going to start addressing this issue of timing. If you remember back in, if you remember back in 24 verse 3, 24 verse 3, the whole spark, the whole thing that initiated this discourse is a question by the disciples. Let's look at that really briefly. He said, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And that these things uh, are the coming of Jesus. They are the destruction of the temple and they are the turn of the age, all of those things. But there's two questions. There's kind of two sub-questions to their one main question. And the two sub-questions are, what's the sign? What are the markers that we know that this is happening? Uh, and then what is, the, actually the first question they asked is, what's the timing, the when, the temporal question? And really, Jesus, as we've been arguing, has addressed those in reverse order. Everything really from verse 4 all the way through verse 35, it's all been about markers. This is going to happen. You're going to see this happen. And when this happens, do this. It's all about those, that idea of a sign, a marker for the Son of Man, for Jesus coming again. But there was this question about timing. There was this question about timing, and that is what Jesus is going to now start addressing, starting in verse 36. So we really ended the first half of this discourse, and from verse 36 all the way to the end of chapter 25, he is going to be really addressing this issue of timing. When? When will these things happen? What's the calendar date, so to speak? What's the timeline? What's the time frame? What are the dates we attach to this stuff? And Jesus is going to start addressing that this morning. And as he does so, he's not going to be worried about timing. He's not going to be worried about timing. But what he is going to be worried about is faithfulness. Faithfulness. And so that leads us to our big idea this morning. Stay faithful because the time of your master's arrival is unknown. 
Stay faithful because the time of your master's arrival is unknown. That's really the argument of uh, not only this week, but in the coming weeks, that's going to be the central idea. Stay faithful, keep diligent, stay alert. So what we get this morning is three ways, three ways we need to respond with the reality that the timing of the master's arrival is unknown. What do we do with that? Well, Jesus gives us three ways to respond to that. So the time of your master's arrival is unknown. So first, in verses 36 through 42, keep awake to escape sweeping judgment. Keep awake to escape sweeping judgment. Look at verse 36. But concerning that day and hour. So you can see Jesus is switching topics. Whenever you got that kind of but concerning, that's a really big clue elsewhere in the New Testament as well, that there's a big topic switch. So Jesus is switching topic. What's he switching topic to? That day and hour. We're talking about timing. We're talking about dates, which pairs nicely, uh, pairs with the disciples' question about when. When are these things going to happen? And Jesus says, concerning that day or hour, here's the answer. No one knows. That's the answer about timing in a nutshell right there, uh, at least as far as the, how the disciples asked that question. No one knows. And then he goes on to describe, well, who doesn't know? Uh, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. So he's escalating this. He's saying no one knows, no human being knows, not even the angels of heaven. So now he's escalating it and thinking about angels and those who dwell in heaven. As Jesus has gone through, even in Matthew 24, he's shown how angels have a big role. When Jesus comes again, they're going to sound a trumpet and they're going to gather the elect, the chosen from the four winds of heaven. They have a big role in this. So you might think, well, they're going to know. Jesus says, no, they don't know. But then he says this, he says, not even the sun, nor the sun, not even the angels of heaven, nor the sun, but the father only. Only the Father knows. Now, Jesus' point in saying this is to set the groundwork for what he's going to exhort the disciples to. Effectively, he's saying, no one knows except the Father. So here's how you think about that time. Here's how you prepare. Here's how you look forward to that, how you live in the meantime. But, of course, as we look at verse 36, as we read that, we need to take a little bit of an aside and think about, well, wait a minute, how can the Son the Son not know. Because when Jesus is talking about the Son, even though he's talking about the Son in third person, he's talking about the Son of Man. I mean, the whole coming business uh, that Jesus has been talking about, he's talking about his coming. He's talking about the Son of Man from Daniel, the exalted one coming with the clouds of heaven, with power and great glory. Like, he's, he's, he's the center event. And at least right here, he's saying, I don't know which should also raise questions in our minds. It's not the central point of this passage, but it always comes up as we walk through this passage, is how can the Son not know? Especially if the Son is God, which we confess. We believe that Jesus is God the Son incarnate. And Matthew himself, as we've walked through Matthew, it has been very, very clear that uh, Jesus is identified as the divine Son. He is God, the Son incarnate. He's been clearly presented that way multiple times, multiple arguments. He has forgiven sin. He has walked on water, which is only God's prerogative in the Old Testament. There are so many ways in which Jesus has clearly been shown to be not only the Son of David, 
the ultimate Messiah who's going to reign over Jerusalem and over the whole world, but he has been shown to be the divine son. So how can he not know? Because God is omniscient. He knows everything. So how can the son not know? Here is what is amazing as well about Matthew. In, even though Matthew presents the gospels as a whole, present Jesus as the God man, as God, the son incarnate, they also equally present the son of God living authentically as a human independence on the heavenly father. Uh, turn back to Matthew 4 as we address this. Again, this is kind of an aside. It's not the main thrust of what uh, is happening here, but it brings up questions and we need to address those, a legitimate question. How can Jesus not know, um, especially when the event is about his coming, but even more particularly since he is God? But what we see in the incarnation, what we see in God the Son incarnate is as he lives authentically as a human, he he lives subject to the limitations of his human nature. Uh, just as an example of that, Matthew 4 paints the picture really clearly. Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. God doesn't get hungry. But God the Son incarnate, as he is living authentically through his human nature, is hungry. He, and we see that it's not just about that, right? It's like, well, wait a minute. Does, does that mean he's not God anymore? Does that mean he, he laid aside his divine nature? Absolutely not, because notice what happens in light of this. Verse 3, And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, what is the devil doing? He's saying, Hey, Jesus, I know you're hungry, and I know you're God, and I know you have access to your divine nature still. So you could really easily just whip up some bread out of these stones. Like Jesus could do that. And what does, it's a temptation, right? It's a temptation to what? Well, let's see how Jesus answers. Verse 4, but he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And really what Jesus does there, he's saying, I'm being dependent on the Father. What is the devil tempting him to do? He's tempting him to use his divine nature, which he can do. Jesus never ceased being God. He never ceased to have the ability to access his divine nature. But as an authentic human, he was living subject to the limitations of his human nature, but always in dependence on the Father. What is the devil trying to get him to do? Well, go ahead and use it. Go ahead and use it, independent of your Father, to go ahead and whip up some bread and ease what your human nature is causing you to feel, namely hunger pangs in this instance. Jesus lived authentically human, subject to the limitations of his human nature. What do we mean? When we confess that Jesus is God, what do we mean? That the person of the Son has always had a divine nature, will always have a divine nature, never ceased to have a divine nature, but in the incarnation, he added a human nature to his divine nature. And when he became a man, he, in dependence on his father, as he had been dependent for all eternity, lived subject to the limitations of that nature unless the father authorized him to use it. We even see in Matthew 4 that Jesus in his ministry is always dependent on the power of the spirit of God to empower his ministry. So all the miracles, all the casting out of demons, they are done through the power of the Holy Spirit as Jesus depends on the father. 
Thus, what we see, so all of that going back, we see uh, Jesus living according to the limitations, authentically as a human being. And those limitations include knowledge. To live as a human means you don't know everything. To live as a human means that there are things that God knows, that the Father knows that you don't. And that is exactly what is happening in Matthew 24, 36. Jesus is living as an authentic human, dependent on his Father, not knowing the day of his own return, according to his human nature. Luke 2, 52, it even talks about how Jesus grew as he grew up. He grew in knowledge and wisdom. So this is nothing new. What we see here in Matthew 24, 36 is Jesus as an authentic human, not knowing the day of his coming as the, tr- the son of man, because the father had not willed, yet willed him to know this fact as the son living through his human nature. But again, that's all kind of an aside to what Jesus is doing in this passage. Because he has no qualms about raising the issue. He says, no one knows except the Father. And the point is, of verse 36, is not to kind of dwell on divine metaphysics, although that's a valid point to, to raise, but to acknowledge no one knows. That's the answer to the disciples' question. No one knows the day or the hour. And then he supports this. He supports this assertion that only the Father knows. He supports that assertion with only the Father knows by comparing it to the days of Noah. Look at verse 37. For, so that little four there clues us in that Jesus is going to support what he just said about no one knows, and he's going to support it by looking at the days of Noah. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus is drawing a comparison. He's saying, all right, days of Noah, the coming of the Son of Man, there's a similarity there. Well, how so? He elaborates, verse 38. For... As in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So what is Jesus drawing a picture of? Um, He's drawing a picture of what went on in Noah's day. So we know, uh, if you read the biblical text in Genesis 6 and 7, etc., and following, that, um, that the world in Genesis 6 was wicked. The intention of everyone's thoughts was only evil continually. That's how Genesis 6 describes the state of man. So God approaches Noah and his family. He rescues Noah, he rescues his wife, he rescues his sons, and he rescues his son's wife. And that's all the only people that get rescued. The everyone else, the the people that Jesus is talking about here, that's everyone else except Noah's family. And what is he saying? He's saying these people, these people who are destined for judgment, these wicked who are destined for judgment, um, what were they doing before the flood came? They were living normal lives. They were eating. They were drinking. They were marrying. They were being given in marriage. Normal life. Until until the day that Noah got into the ark. And these people, those who were destined for judgment, those wicked who were destined for judgment, were unaware until the flood came. They had no knowledge. So they see that word there for unaware? They didn't know. Well, this ties in with what Jesus already said in verse 36. No one knows... And what is Jesus focusing in on here? He's focusing in on 
the, the ignorance that those who are facing judgment, the wicked who are under God's judgment, uh, he is connecting with them and he's connecting with comparison in Noah's day. Those wicked in Noah's day who were going to face the judgment of the flood, they had no idea. No idea. Now, you might be thinking, if you know your Bible a little bit, it's like, wait a minute, I thought Noah preached, preached to his generation. Second Peter 2 talks about Noah preaching to his generation. So wait a minute, didn't Noah preach about this coming judgment and this flood? Because Noah knew about it. Well, indeed he did. But there's a sort of uh, uh, not knowing, a willful ignorance Right? That when someone tells someone else something they don't want to hear, and like, ah, that's baloney. They heard it. They heard the, the facts, and they even heard the truth being relayed to them, but they were willfully unaware. Shove it away. Throw it away. That's who the wicked in, in those who were under judgment in Noah's day, that's what was happening with them. They were unaware. Yes, may, they may not have known the flood was coming, period. But they may have even heard Noah speaking, hey, the flood's coming, the flood's coming, the flood's coming. And they're like, ah, whatever. I'm just going to keep eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Now, there is nothing wrong with those activities, is there? Marrying, uh, eating and drinking, marrying or giving in marriage. Nothing wrong with those things. Everyday things. Noah did those things, didn't he? Uh, Noah ate. Pretty sure Noah ate and drank. Pretty sure Noah got married, because it talks about his wife. Uh, I'm pretty sure his sons and, you know, his daughters-in-law, they got married and were given in marriage. So even Noah participated in these activities, but there's something different about the unawareness of those who are wicked under the, 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 under the judgment of the coming flood. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what is the link? The link is the coming of the Son of Man is a coming of judgment. The coming of the Son of Man is a coming of judgment. More terrifying than the worldwide flood. Here's the reality about God's judgment. God's judgment and salvation come at the same time. When the Son of Man comes, the Son of Man will gather his people. It was already said, that was already said in chapter 24. And for those people, it'll be salvation. For everyone else, it will be judgment. And it's not because one group is more sinless than another, because all are equally sinners and, uh, before a holy God and deserve his wrath. But for those people who belong to Jesus, who have repented and placed their faith in Jesus... The coming is going to be different, but the accent here in this text is Jesus saying, no one knows, and let's talk about uh, those, uh, the wicked who are under God's judgment, let's talk about their unawareness, let's talk about their ignorance. It's going to be just like the coming of the Son of Man, it's going to be like the flood. And then he illustrates more what this is going to look like. Well, what's the coming of the Son of Man going to look like? Verse 40, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. So what's the picture here? You've got two guys working out in the field and um, everyday activity, right? Just like eating and drinking, marrying and being given to marriage. Working out in the field, everyday activity. All of a sudden, one's gone and one's remains. 
Uh, okay, then you got a couple women. They're grinding at the mill. Now, this type of mill, you could have two women that would take to work together to grind flour. Everyday activity. One's taken, one's left. Big question is, where are they taken to? Like, where do they go? Well, this is where knowing the context of the book of Matthew helps us out. Go back to Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives a bunch of parables, and his parables are oriented towards the end of the age. They're oriented towards, they talk about many things, but they are oriented towards the final day, the coming of the Son of Man. One of those parables is the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the darnel, the wheat and the wheat lookalike. And Jesus explains this parable in Matthew 13, 36 through 43, to his disciples. So he already has given the parable at this point, and then he's explaining it to his disciples. But what he says here actually sheds light on what's going on in Matthew 24. Matthew 13, 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the, of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Now, remember back to the parable, uh, you've got wheat and a wheat look-alike. So they look similar, side by side, growing together till the harvest. Uh, the, uh, uh, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels... And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now look at that passage. It is the exact same event that Jesus is describing in Matthew 24. The son of man comes. We saw in chapter 24 that the angels are going to come. They're going to blow a trumpet. Um, and he's describing more in detail what the coming of Son of Man is going to be looking like in our passage today. In Matthew 13, uh, who gets taken away? The Darnell does. Those under judgment, those the wicked get taken away to judgment. And who stays behind? The righteous to stay in the kingdom of the Father. That is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, when he's talking about there's these two people in the field, one gets taken away and one gets left. Uh, there's, this, this, uh, the, there's these two women, they're grinding, they're doing everyday activities, one gets taken away and one's left. Well, where are the people who, the people that get taken away are taken away to judgment. And the people who remain are the people who remain that are the righteous, those who have trusted in Jesus, who are Jesus' people, who remain in his kingdom and then shine like lights in the kingdom of the Father. Now, Jesus draws a conclusion from all of this. What, is he, what has he basically said? No one knows. Uh, the ignorance of the wicked looks like this. They're not going to know anything until they're swept away in judgment. They're not going to know anything until they're unexpectedly swept away in judgment. And then notice what Jesus says by way of application to his disciples. Verse 42, therefore, stay awake. 
for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now let's think about this for a second. The ignorance of those who are taken away in judgment is different than the ignorance of the disciples. The ignorance of the disciples is not that Jesus is coming. They know that Jesus is coming. That's the whole topic under discussion, isn't it? Jesus' disciples know that he is coming. The wicked do not know at all. But the disciples have their own ignorance. The ignorance that they have is what Jesus started with. No one knows the day or the hour. They don't know when. The disciples don't know when, but they know that it's happening. The wicked don't know anything. Now, think about what Jesus is exhorting them to. He's saying, stay awake, for you do not know the day or the hour. Now, it's like, wait a minute. He's talking about God's judgment on the wicked. Why is he talking about all that and then saying, uh, you guys stay awake? Well, what is, what is the uh, ignorance of the wicked look like? It looks like we're doing everyday tasks, living our life, no awareness that the Son of Man is going to come, and just living like everyone else. Then Jesus says to his disciples, uh, stay awake. Implying what? Well, what happens if you don't stay awake, you start drifting off to sleep. Which, what would drifting off to sleep look like? Living just like the wicked. Now notice, that doesn't mean that you stop doing everyday activities. Both Noah and the, 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 those under judgment in his day, they both are doing everyday activities. And even the people, the, the, you know, the two that are grinding or in the field, they're both doing everyday activities. But the difference between them is knowing that an event is coming, an event of judgment is coming, Yes, do we still living an everyday life, but living in awareness and preparation? Think of Noah. He had to build an ark over the course of several decades. He's doing his everyday tasks, but he's also preparing for the day. He's not asleep. He's aware. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about his disciples. As things delay, as things take time, you're going to be tempted to live just like everyone else. Oh yeah, you're still going to do your everyday activities, but you're going to live as if there's no awareness. Or you're going to be tempted to live as if there's no awareness of the coming of the Son of Man. And if you live that way, then actually you're showing you're not mine and you're going to be swept away in judgment. So you better stay awake. Keep vigilant. Keep vigilant throughout the whole You see, the reality is, is that we know as Christians, we, we don't know when Christ is coming back, but that can quickly slide into not knowing that he's coming back. Don't let knowing when Christ is coming back slide into not knowing that Christ is coming back. Functionally, what does this mean? It might mean that as Christians, we're like, well, we've been waiting for so long, and we don't know, so it doesn't really matter. So I'm just going to live my everyday life, and I'm just going to let that take care of itself. And functionally, what that looks like is a slide into apathy and laziness and living just like non-Christians. Oh, yeah, we're going to do the same everyday activities as non-Christians do as far as eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, legitimate activities. We're always going to do that. 
but we lose awareness that Christ is actually coming. We get sleepy. We want to stay awake. We want to live with a constant awareness of the reality of Christ's coming, a vigilance such that we believe that Christ is coming and it's fresh each and every day, that Christ is coming. I'm waiting, and I'm going to live like he's coming because I know he's coming. I don't know when, but I'm going to live because I know he's coming. It means you walk like Noah. It's amazing, going back to Genesis 6 and 7, it's pretty clear Noah didn't know the day of the flood. He doesn't really know till Genesis 7-1, but prior to that, God's saying, build an ark. And he builds his ark, and he does what God commands him to do, but he doesn't know the timing of the flood, but what is he doing? He's living awake. He knows it's coming. He's acting like it's coming. He's still doing everyday affairs, but he's doing other things besides that look foolish in the eyes of the world. So staying awake means you walk like Noah, obeying God and doing seemingly foolish things because you know that Christ is coming. This takes hard work. Uh, when we talk about perseverance, as we've been talking about in these, uh, these chapters, it, it's a call to constant mindfulness of believing these things are true and living in light of them. So that each day we are aware, yes, the Lord is coming. I don't know when, but I know he's going to come. And so that changes how I live today in light of that reality. We need to stay awake. Now, Jesus is going to expound more on what does that look like? What does that mean to stay awake? What, what do we do? He's going to expound on that more, but this is just the call to mindfulness. Don't fall asleep. Don't become apathetic. Don't slip from not knowing when Jesus is coming to slipping on living like you don't know that that he is coming. Now, along with this, keep this in mind. The non-Christians around you have no idea that the Lord is coming. Now, they may hear you talk about it, or they may have heard someone else talk about it, but some people just don't even know. But even if they've heard about it, they've probably dismissed it out of hand. So you got to keep in mind that those around you have no idea that the Lord is coming and will sweep them away in judgment. Let that sink in. You know, driving to church this morning, I see people along the sidewalks walking their dogs or doing whatever. They're just doing everyday stuff. And they don't know that God's judgment is overhanging them. They don't know that Jesus is going to come from the heavens in glory and in flaming fire with angels to sweep them away in judgment unless they repent and place their faith in Jesus. Let that sink in. There are those who are eating and drinking when the flood of judgment is about to sweep them away forever. What should that motivate us to? It should motivate you to compassion and sharing the gospel. Because people around you that you work with, that you play golf with, that you windsurf with, that you do whatever with, they don't know that God's judgment is coming. And that unless they repent and place their faith in Jesus and walk as a disciple of Jesus, they are destined for God's eternal wrath in hell forever. Stay awake. Stay vigilant. Don't fall asleep. You don't know when your master is coming. So keep awake to escape sweeping judgment. But secondly, this. Keep prepared to guard against being stolen away. Keep prepared to guard against being stolen away. Look at verse 43. 
Now, Jesus switches imagery here, so I think he's, he's separating out a slightly different topic. Still related, obviously, but, but hear what he says in verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Jesus paints this imagery of... Uh, talking about someone who owns a house, someone who owns a house, and there's the potential of a thief breaking in. Uh, And the way thieves would often break in at that time, they would actually dig through like the walls because the walls were like made of mud, you know, hardened mud and stuff like that. So they would literally infiltrate the house that way. It was actually quieter than trying to infiltrate it another way. But what Jesus is saying is, well, suppose this guy who owns a house, suppose he knew, suppose he knew what hour, what watch of the night, What timing during the night the thief was coming? Well, if the guy knew that, and Jesus is saying he doesn't, but if the guy knew that, he would clearly just stay awake to that hour, and he would prevent, he would prepare, and he would prevent this thief coming in. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So Jesus is drawing this comparison. He's saying, uh, it's like me coming like a thief. That's how I'm coming. And we see this motif throughout the rest of the New Testament. Jesus likens his coming like a thief. And he's saying that, okay, if, you, if, the, if, if the guy would have known what hour, he would have stayed up and guarded. Now he's telling his disciples, you got to stay up and guard too. Now, um, the master of the house obviously doesn't know. Thieves don't announce ahead of time when they're going to come. So the master of the house has no knowledge of when the thief's going to come. So he's going to stay asleep and he's going to get robbed. But Jesus is drawing a comparison with the disciples. The disciples know that the thief is coming. They don't know the timing of the night, but they do know that he's coming sometime during the night. Now, let's think about this. Suppose you're the guy, the, the, the owner of the house, and uh, maybe you knew which hour the thief was going to come. You would guard against that. But maybe you didn't know the exact hour, but you knew that sometime during the night the thief is coming. Well, uh, you'd stay up still, wouldn't you? Uh, even though you don't know the specific timing, you're going to stay up for the whole night, aren't you? As long as you know that the thief is coming sometime during that night. That's the situation of the disciples. They don't know the hour. They don't know the exact timing, but they know that he's coming. They know the thief is coming. Now, you might say, that man, the thief imagery for Jesus is kind of weird. Like, Jesus coming like a thief, what's the picture? What's he going to steal? We'll go back to the analogy of the master of the house, right? Why would a master of a house want to prevent a thief from coming in? Because he's got valuables, like he's got all of his stuff and his things that he puts value in, and he wants to prevent the thief from taking it. For those who are unprepared for Jesus coming, what is he going to steal? He's going to steal what they think their life is all about. Right? Those, those who don't belong to Jesus, those who don't belong to God, or those who at least maybe even profess to, but they're actually putting all their stock, all of their, their desires, all their affections on other things. We call that false worship. And they say, my life is in this. My life is in the abundance of my possessions. My life is in my family. My life is in uh, my religiosity. My life is in this. My, this is where my value is. Well, he's going to steal away what they think is true life. He's going to end it. He's going to cut it short. Think about it like this for, for application. 
if Jesus came back today in all his glory, so flash in the sky, angels coming, blowing trumpets, son of man coming on the clouds. That's going to happen one of these days. There's going to be a date that rolls over in the future where that's all going to happen. Let's suppose it happened today. Would you be prepared? And what does that look like? Maybe you could boil it down to this. Would you rejoice knowing that you have repented and placed your faith in Jesus and walked not perfectly, but faithfully as his disciple? Would you rejoice? Would you rejoice because what you've been longing for has come, namely dwelling with Christ in his kingdom forever? Is that what you've been longing for and looking forward to? Yes! Jesus is coming back. I get to dwell with him in a perfect, renewed heavens and earth forever. He is righteous. He is good. I'm, yes, forget all this stuff I've been dealing with. Forget my life. This is what I've been longing for. Or would you feel robbed? Would you feel robbed? Dang it. I had so much more to do. I had so much more to accumulate. I had so much more tasks to do in life. I mean, just to give you a foolish example of this. This is me back in high school, very foolish, okay? I remember thinking exactly this way. Those of you who don't know me, okay, I'm a Star Wars nerd. I just, you know, I, I still like it, okay? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like really anxious for episode three to come out, right? So this is like pre-2005. I'm like, oh man, this is gonna be great. This is gonna be great. I hope Jesus doesn't come back before that happens. <laughs> I'm serious, how stupid and foolish. But that's, that's what I mean. Like, would you feel robbed if Jesus came back over something so trivial and dumb? Jesus is the treasure of the gospel. It's not just the escaping from his wrath. He is saving us to knowing him and the triune God for all eternity in a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. That is the gospel. That's the treasure, the goal of the gospel. So if he comes back, are you like, yes, it's come. Or are you like, dang it. I had so much more to do. Yeah, what? But that's, that'll tell you, you may not say out loud here, but what's going on in your heart, right? Would you feel disappointed if Jesus came back or would you be rejoicing? Are you prepared? Are you staying awake? You don't know when your master's arrival is happening, so keep awake to escape sweeping judgment. Keep prepared to guard against being stolen away. And uh, third and finally this morning, keep nourishing fellow disciples for future blessing. Keep nourishing fellow disciples for future blessing. Look at verse 45. Jesus gives us beautiful, well, he gives us very vivid pictures of what this is all going to be like. So he's talked about Noah. He's talked about a thief coming. Now he talks about something else. He gives us another picture. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise slave whom his master has set over his household slaves to give, them their fixed, to give them their food at the proper time. So what's the picture here? The picture is, again, a master of a house, and he's going somewhere. So he appoints one of his household slaves over the rest of the household slaves. 
Okay, so when it talks about setting him over his household, it's actually more particularly, he's setting him over his fellow household slaves, like a steward. And Jesus characterizes this person as faithful and wise. And what is this faithful and wise slave supposed to do? He's over his fellow slaves to do what? To give food at the proper time. So the idea is there's a whole household full of slaves. They need, they've got work to do uh, each and every day. This, how, uh, this, this, this slave that the master has set over everyone, he's supposed to dole out the food and the nourishment so that these slaves can do their work for the master each and every day. And he's saying, who is this person? Who, who's like that? This faithful and wise slave. What, uh, who's, who's, who's the faithful and wise slave that's doing something like that? What does Jesus say? Verse 46, blessed is that slave whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Now, this word here for blessing, it's the same sort of word that was used in the Beatitudes. And remember when we talked about the Beatitudes, the word for blessed is less about someone's pronouncing a blessing on you and more about your blessed or happy or flourishing state. You've got a great, flourishing, happy, favorable state. That's the idea of this word blessed here. Why? Because the master came back and found this slave that he had pointed over his fellow slaves, handing over, doing what he was told to do, nourishing his fellow slaves to do the work of the master. And the, when the master finds him doing that, there's blessing. There's a favorable status. And notice what it results in, verse 47. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So you were faithful, uh, for, uh, to, uh, you were faithful as a slave to uh, give nourishment to my other slaves uh, and have them do my work, and you were consistent, and I came back and I found you doing this. Uh, well, now you get greater responsibility. Now you get greater responsibility over more of the master. That's the blessing. So that's the positive side. But there's a negative side, verse 48. But if that wicked servant, so now it's an alternate case, same setup. There's a, a slave that the master puts over the household slaves, but this time it's not a good slave. It's not a faithful and wise slave. It's a wicked slave. But if that wicked slave says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour that he does not know. And will cut him in pieces, literally cut him in two and put him with the hypocrites, the play actors. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Same circumstance. Notice the slaves know the same thing. They know that the master is coming back. They just don't know when. But the first guy is faithful and wise, and he consistently is about his master's business, persistently, to when his master comes back. The second guy, because of the delay, says, well, this is a golden opportunity for me to act as the master, for me to beat my slaves, and actually really a twisted version of the master, to beat my fellow slaves, to take advantage rather than feeding others. He's, he's eating and drinking himself with drunkards. And maybe it's like the mentality of, you know, I don't know if any of you did this growing up, but um, mom and dad are gone, and they're gone for a long time. 
party time. And, oh, we'll have plenty of time to clean up the house before they get back. And then all of a sudden, you know, headlights in the windows or whatever, they find you sleeping on the, the couch in the midst of total chaos. And there's wrath, right? Well, how much more? How much more with this wicked slave? What's the picture that Jesus is drawing? He's drawing a picture of a disciple, a faithful and wise disciple in the first case, who is nourishing his fellow slaves, helping them on the path of discipleship, making disciples. Every disciple of Jesus, every follower of Jesus is to be a disciple maker to do what Matthew 28, 18 through 20 talks about, to teach, to baptize and to teach all that Jesus commanded. Now, there's a particular application here for Christian leaders, like elders, right? Because Jesus has appointed elders, the Holy Spirit has appointed elders in a church over fellow servants, fellow slaves, fellow disciples. And elders and pastors are supposed to nourish nourish the flock, nourish the church. And so as we think of, uh, he's, he's picturing that, that that's, that's the task. But the question is, if there's a delay, how's the response going to be? Is there going to be persistence, just week in, week out, nourishing fellow disciples? Or is there going to be the idea, well, really, Jesus is going to be gone for a long time. Uh, it gives me an opportunity to exalt me to live for me, to play the master. When Jesus comes back and finds someone who's professing to be a disciple and is doing that, exalting self at the expense of fellow disciples, then they're going to show there really weren't disciples. They were a play actor, just like the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh, they look good on the outside and people flocked around them and all of this sort of stuff, but the master is going to come back and cut the person in two and put them in hell. That's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Jesus' way of referring to final judgment in hell. Application for this one is pretty clear. First, elders of this church. So me, Steve, Andre, Jim. We have a responsibility to our master to give this flock, food, so that they can do their master's will. This is what we seek to do as elders of Faith Bible Church. This is what we seek to do on Sunday morning. This is what we seek to do in discipleship groups. This is what we do when we seek to meet with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are fellow slaves, appointed by our master with a particular role, appointed as stewards. Our desire is to feed you. Elders, Let's not slip into the thinking that we are owners. We are stewards. And let's look forward to the approval of our master when he arrives. For you as the church, Faith Bible Church members here, please let us feed you. Please let us feed you. That is what our master has tasked us to do. We want to equip you to do the work of ministry, to do the will of the master. Even though there's a particular application to Christian leaders, there is a reality that as all Christians are called to be disciple makers to help their fellow disciples follow Jesus. So there's a primary application here to, or a particular application to Christian leaders, but there's an application for all of us. You as a disciple and follower of Jesus 
are called to nourish your fellow disciples. Turn to Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 to see this reality. Ephesians 4, 11, Paul says this, and he, that's Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, okay, so those are the elders and pastors, to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The elders are to equip the saints, the members of the church, to do the work of ministry. So who's the minister? Not me. Well, partly me, but all of us as members of a local church. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may be no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. See it? Everyone, all the saints, are speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body, the members, build the, the body up in love. By how? Speaking the truth in love to one another. So back to Matthew 24, when Jesus talks about a wise and a faithful slave, that is the elders of the church, it's the deacons of the church, it's every member of the church being faithful to build up your fellow disciples in the church. Are you being faithful and a wise slave while your master delays? Are you serving your brothers and sisters in this local church? Or if you're visiting with us this morning in another local church where you're from, are you intentionally seeking your fellow disciples' spiritual good and growth in the Lord? Are you here to be a consumer or a contributor? See, we may misunderstand that uh, the member or the attender is the consumer, right? So if you don't like the product we are giving, well, I can go elsewhere. That's not how Jesus thinks of the church. He saves an individual, brings them into a church, and gives them a job a glorious job to serve and help fellow disciples, fellow members on their way to heaven. Are you a consumer or are you a contributor? Who was a consumer in this parable? It was the wicked slave, wasn't it? Who thought it was all about him. Who took advantage of his fellow, fellow disciples, fellow slaves. What does faithful disciple-making look like? He's like, well, I have this job to do. What does that mean? Here's, boil it down, really simple. Do someone else spiritual good, meaning point them to Jesus. Tell them truth. Encourage them. Challenge them. Uh, confront sin in them. That's what it means to be a disciple-maker, to share Jesus' teaching, to proclaim Jesus' teaching, to help a fellow disciple on their way to the end. And there's a reward. Let the reward, remember what Jesus says, if, if you're persistent, you're faithful in what you're doing, you love Jesus, of course, that's why you're doing it, but the, the master is good, he's going to give a reward of faithful stewardship, and let that motivate you. 
On the flip side, if there's no concern for your fellow disciples or no service for the sake of a fellow disciples, you very well might be on the road to weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you're just saying, well, I'm just here, I'm just kind of waiting for Jesus to come back, and, you know, I'm glad for people to pour into me, but I don't really care about anyone else, it's just all about me. It sounds an awful lot like the wicked slave in the parable, doesn't it? Don't be that way. Repent, see the goodness of the master, and be a faithful disciple. So what has Jesus said in these, and he's going to continue in weeks to come, he's going to flesh this out more, but what has he said? You don't know. You don't know when Jesus is coming back. You don't know the time or the hour. If you think you know, you don't. Uh, I can plan a, a, a vacation that day because I know for certain Jesus is not coming back if you predict a day and an hour, right? We don't know. But that doesn't mean you just sit back and wait, kick up your heels. It means stay faithful. Stay faithful because the time of your master's arrival is unknown. Keep awake to escape sweeping judgment Keep prepared to guard against being stolen away. Keep nourishing fellow disciples for future blessing. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you have died on the cross for your people to rescue them, to rescue them from sin, from, to, to rescue them from judgment, your judgment, and to... Give them the treasure of you for all eternity in a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. The Father, the Son, and Spirit enjoying the triune God for all eternity. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that rescue. And now help us to endure, to be faithful, to day in and day out live mindfully, awake that you're coming and live in light of that. Help us to live faithfully, doing spiritual good to one another so that we might make it to the end, encouraging one another, confronting one another, helping one another, serving one another, loving one another until the day. And Lord, help us to not be found disappointed on that day, but joyful, knowing that real life has actually started when you come back. May that be our longing. Help us to fight for that each and every day, we ask. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.